I think the reality is that anyone who's worked in technology long enough knows that there is no such thing as no technical debt and there is no such thing as no legacy. And the speed at which you acquire it is staggering and depressing. Hi, welcome to our first episode of series three of our rebranded CFT podcast series. What began a couple of years ago as FinTech Founders is now called What's Next with Gaurav and Ronit. Gaurav in the blue and Ronit in the green are your co-hosts. And in the white, I think that's white later. Is that white? It is white. <laughs> in the white is our awesome guest for our first episode of the relaunch, Leda Glyptus. Leda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You didn't tell me you would like frame it like a boxing match in the blue corner, in the red corner. I'm glad I'm I didn't know either until about 10 seconds ago. You know me, just making stuff up as usual. But uh, thank you for having me. Really, really good. I just realized that we sort of, lucky this is not a darker green because then Gaurav and I would be the standard chartered colors and we'd have to ask them for sponsorship money or something. But uh, I've heard worse. Are there any flags that are green, white, and blue? I don't know. Um, that's something for the producers to work out later. But later, it's a real pleasure to have you back. Uh, I think you've just come back from some time in Greece, uh, your homeland, back to your adopted right. homeland, London. And tell the audience a little bit about yourself. You've described yourself often as a recovering banker. And now you're also an official author. An official so, author, yeah. I know. So tell us. So I am, a, I am, as you say, a, a recovering banker. I've been in, in finance for coming up 20 years now, entirely accidental. It was not a little girl's dream to become a banker, but um, because, really? yeah, oh. I actually, you joke, but one of my very good friends from university, her little brother used to come and visit us when he was like yeah. 11, 12, and all he wanted was to join Credit Suisse at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one Credit of his is right. Credit Suisse was a big thing back then. But was, I remember, was it in Switzerland? No, Spanish. What? I remember seeing this kid thinking there's something very strange. Because, you know, at his age, you mostly want to become an astronaut. Anyway, or a racing driver or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Fernando Alonso or something. I don't know. This guy wanted to work for Credit Suisse. It was very specific. Um, I never did. But did he, he ended up working for Credit Suisse. He did. He, did. He, he worked for Credit Suisse for a very long time. <laughs> All I'm going to say is it is not his fault. Okay. Um, but unlike little Antonio, it was not my dream, but I, I fell into banking accidentally. A lot of, a lot of our generation did finishing university. And mm. my horror, I discovered I was good at it and I enjoyed it. Um, so I stayed in the space for my entire career. And in the last five, six years, I've been on the software vendor, FinTech side, whichever way you want to call it. So technically not a banker anymore, but I still find myself thinking like one. Right. Like one. My recovery is long. It has not quite, it has not quite right. happened. Yet. So you're a you're a banker behind vendor lines, huh? I am. I am. Yeah. And you're now a published author as well. I can see the product placement behind you. I know. It's it's positioned so that I can point at it. Like point to it. I know. What does it say? Is that Bankers Like Us? Or what's the book called? Bankers Like Us. You're telling me you haven't got a copy yet, Ronit. We ran out. 
we remember I was I was in the queue in London. You were signing copies, and we ran out. I think Dave Cunningham took the last one. I don't know. It's a good problem to have. Tell you what, I'll bring you a copy next time I see you. Yeah, I. I'm... I'll bring you two copies next time I see you. I don't think it's on sale. Is it on sale in Dubai? Is it on? I don't know. We have to check, Gara. Sale on Amazon. Does Amazon deliver to Dubai? When I lived in the GC. Does Amazon deliver to Dubai? That's a great neat segue to our new product from CFT, selling books from authors. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, there's E in the title of CFT, right? Education and finance and technology. And that's kind of what the book's about, right, Leda? That is Thank exactly you for the free books, Leda. That's what Ron is trying to get at. Free education, yes. <laughs> so tell us about this book. Tell us about Bankers Like Us. Why did you write it? What's it about? Um, it is about the fact that we have been, as an industry, in a process of digital transformation, digitization, <clears throat> technology overhauls for about 15 years. We've been told that change is the new normal pretty much mm. every day of those 15 years. And although the journey has been difficult and long, we're nowhere near where we need to be. And if we look around us, the economy is digitized mm. fully in some cases and, and rapidly in others. And financial services almost universally are not. Um, we've gone in the space of a few decades from being a leading light in technology adoption to being a laggard across all industries. My argument in, in keynotes and articles and now in this book is that the reasons for this are not technological or regulatory as we have liked to um to claim over the past few years it's people it's it's people in their foibles their habits their structures the way they do rfps the way they promote the way they divide their time um and it's much harder to change the habits of a multi-thousand person organization than it is to deploy a new system but equally all of the habits and structures and constructs are man-made and therefore within our gift to change. So the the sort mm. of the, the, the tenor of the book is it's bankers like us that are the problem, but ultimately it's bankers like us that can be the solution. So let's just double click on a couple of things. Sorry, that's a real culprit cliche. Double click on a couple of things you just said there. Banking used to be at the forefront. So in the in the mainframe era, in the kind of Late 50s, early 60s, computers start arriving in the US, UK, and France. Uh, for those of you who remember your bull computers, uh, not that I remember, not that old, but you know, uh, banking, you know, mainframes start appearing. Um, and then even to the early desktop era, sort of early 80s, banking is still one of the more advanced uses of technology. What happens in the noughties? Well, a little bit maybe the 90s, I don't know if it's the 90s or it starts, but particularly in the noughties, what's happening? And I think this is, when we unpack finance, the capital markets arena, particularly sort of big sort of trading floors in London and elsewhere are super technologically intensive, but commercial banking, retail banking is where the gap opens up. And over the last 20 years in the smartphone era or the so-called digital era, banks fell behind. The bankers like us were there in the 60s or 70s and 80s. They didn't seem to have a problem in being early movers. No, they did not. And I actually, I I, I made some bankers in Singapore a few years back very upset when I said uh, at a big 
closed door event that the most exciting innovation in, in retail banking was the ATM. And there hasn't been anything since. But the reality is there hasn't been anything life changing since not originated by um, mm. by banks themselves. And you're absolutely right. We see the mainframes. OK, now they're they're the bane of our existence. But at the time of their creation, they were absolutely um, pioneering algo trading. That's a, a really aggressively innovative and hungry application of technology. And those who have gotten their hands on a copy of Flash Boys, sadly not written by me, you can see actually the, the bankers pushing the boundaries of both legality and technology. There is a, a massive gap, though, between that hunger and, and what we're seeing in digital adoption. And my personal view is that it's a combination of it's a combination of three things, right? If you look at the adoption of algo trading, there was a very clear non-negotiable upside. It was net new money. There was, you you didn't, you know, pay out with one hand and get paid with the other. It was a very clean commercial upside and, and, a, and a new pool of revenue. When we're looking at digital services, it isn't quite as complicated because the technology investment that you'd need to make to have the right capabilities comes with a lower cost to serve. So that creates reluctance to adopt technology more than we've seen in, in other eras because the economics around it doesn't, aren't as clear cut. And when you're looking at other digital services, creating an expectation now backed by the regulator that digital services will be actually cheaper to deliver um, it, it is a much longer tail for your amortization and, and for your new unit economics to, to stand up. So we've seen 15 years of reluctance. Now, arguably, had we moved early, all of those numbers would have been washing their own face by now. I think the, the, the last piece in the puzzle is that for a long time, and we've all been inside banks when these conversations started, for a long time, banks re really genuinely assumed that these decisions were in our gift. The realization today that the economy is digital and you can't choose whether you will adopt it or not, that, that now is a given. But 15 years ago, when we started talking about digital capabilities, when, um, when we started bringing ideas and new ways of working, when we started talking about APIs for the first time and, and real-time data connectivity inside banks, the implication was, I may not. And with every other technology adoption we've seen, there's been a binary moment of choice. We don't have that anymore. So I think the combination of those factors of the fact that we're not setting the pace, we're not setting the agenda, the economy is maturing and we need to keep up with it. And there's complexity around the economic models means that we, mm -hmm. we have more reluctance than ever. It's a very long answer to a very short question. That's what you get. Um Going back to just pulling on that same thread, going back to the 60s or 70s or 80s, as technology comes into banks and traditional financial institutions, the mainframe era fits very well with the top-down hierarchical bank model. These are big projects. These are big amounts of, you know, you need big budgets. Which is what, what computers started in the defense industry and in NASA in banking and government is you need massive budgets, right? And these are literally physically massive things. You need a whole floor, or someone explained it to me once, 
the original computers sat in high floors and banks in the UK in head office because there was no AC and they needed to be cooled down. And the branches didn't have computers. It sat in head office. And then you call the branches until the 1980s and check what that balance was and then type it into the computer at head office or the regional head office. Um, but this digital era we live in, this era we live in, it's the classic, and again, cliche time, that Clayton Christensen disruptive innovation comes from, you know, small steel mills, not big ones, comes from the sides, comes from the margins. When you go and talk to your biggest clients, your biggest corporate clients as a bank, they're like, don't change it. We want a faster horse. We don't want a, we don't want a plane or a car. We just want a faster horse. And is that kind of, I, there's a question here somewhere later, but I'm just trying <laughs> to get at why in the digital era compared to the mainframe era, these banks have been so bad or slow at adopting technology. I think, um, I mean, there's there's a lot in what you said, right? And 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 you're right. We have technology. The mainframes suited the control environment. They suited the heavily regulated and the way we were regulated at the time, which mm -hmm. was sort of checklist driven. Um, and it also suited the fortress mentality that information mm -hmm. came in and then it was kept safe. As we move to a, a real time data connectivity era, it wasn't the banks that pioneered that. It was e-commerce actually, and and um, and data streaming for news and media, and actually, the security considerations came after. Right, the the ability to do it came first. The ability to do it safely came after. Um, mentally, that doesn't sit very well with a fortress mentality. And as you as you know, because you've been a banker as well in a long time. The first thing we all did inside financial services was try to create a layer, <clears throat> a wrapper mm. of connectivity out around a thing that was not designed to share information. Um, and again, at the time, you can see how that didn't seem like a crazy idea because the belief that everything would be so radically transformed in such a short period of time was just not available to anyone. It, it's not how we were thinking. So uh, when I started my career, we had super users. Do you remember those things? We would build systems, you know, green blinking cursors, and those systems would not, like the idea of UX did not exist. So you would need to have super users in the business who were trained in the foibles of the system, and then they will be the go-to person on their, on their floor. Right, right. Now, Try explaining to someone who's in their mid-20s that a super user might be needed. For them, and rightly so, the idea that you would need a system explained makes it a bad system. But well, we that have them, right? They're the 20-year-olds. Well. <laughs> I mean, in our house, it's our nine-year-old, right? I mean, he's a... Your nine-year-old is my go-to guy, and I don't even live there. Yeah, yeah. We were trying to put all kinds of controls on his devices, and we're failing so far, but... <laughs> well, you know, how how would um, Henry even think about the fact that 20 years ago, yeah. systems would not just need manual. So I remember when we would release new systems back then, we would need to have, obviously, the manuals. We would train super users per floor. So if it was for, for the traders, it would be for every trading floor, there would be at least one super user, usually two in case one was on holiday. And then you would do these knowledge transfer sessions. And there'd be hours over a period of months of knowledge transfer sessions on how to use a system. And this wasn't even for the level three support guys. This was for the users. And it was normal. 
Now the transition we've made from, from, from that to this is huge, but some of the ways of working back then have stayed. So we still do business requirements documents in both large banks and in most startups, even the ones that claim they're agile, they have these BRDs that appear out of nowhere. And you're like, oh, what, what manner of terror is this? So there are certain habitual things that we haven't quite shaken off. I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. Who will imagine the solutions? And if you ask your customer, they might, they will either ask you for a faster horse because that's all they know, or they will bring something from, a, from an adjacency. But the reality is true disruptive innovation will come laterally. And sometimes it will be completely randomly. I mean, I was reading a book recently that said that all fire retardant fabric used by firefighters was accidentally discovered uh, by NASA when they were trying to create something entirely different. So we know that human knowledge evolves in, in a particular way. My, sorry, in a, in a non-linear way. <clears throat> My frustration with, with the financial services industry is that we embrace the acceptance that we need to innovate and be creative. And we created innovation centers. And I'll confess that for a long time, I genuinely believed in what we were doing in those innovation centers. But actually the reality is financial services doesn't need to innovate. Mm. It just needs to service the economy and the economy is <laughs> now digital. So actually you call it what you call it, but get fall into step with the economy you're servicing. Mm. And now it's urgent. Mm. So it's not an innovation unit. It's a, it's a catch up with the reality unit or a, I don't know. It's, it's amazing we're having this conversation right now because it feels like I'm finally, someone gets me. <laughs> Go on, Gara, what do you mean? Oh my God, it's brilliant because I've been providing financial technology services to the banking infrastructure in 15 countries for 20 years personally and the business has been doing it for four decades right and we sit in uh, an ecosystem that's a follower of global ecosystems we're not a first uh, ado uh, adopter or first mover on technology adoption uh, from from a global standards practice policy all the way down to payment technology forget core banking services or business transaction services which you're really focusing on as part of the conversation sets that you all have had exposure to as as bankers but i i see it at, at my level at the consumer the b2b to c part where i'm providing technology to banks and seeing the time frames for adoption the moment technology comes out and the moment it gets into a business or a consumer's hands in this market and because i'm an investor in technology i see when it first happens in really advanced markets like north america or the East Asia. So this conversation is really music to my ears. But the funny part about what you guys just talked about was such an echo about super users because you just described crypto. You, yeah. you just described blockchain and crypto in terms of use cases without even talking about crypto and blockchain. Exactly what you talked about, super users with manuals, but except manuals are now replaced with Discord. And Discord manuals are now replaced with people who are into ecosystems working in parallel. You just described a legacy problem that has a future future problem as well from a user. It's it's unbelievable because that needs to be solved as well, and that's coming through. So this conversation is, in effect, timeless. 
instead of manuals, I guess our, our crypto friends have memes, right? Well, you have Discord, you have memes, Discord. you have things, but effectively they are super users, right? My mm. grandmother can use Apple Pay, but if you tell her to sign up for MetaMask or Binance and actually do trades or link chains and go off chain on one side or the other and do other things, grandma can't do that today. There is sure. a there's a blog in there. Later, uh, blockchain's going to solve the world. Well, you know when it's I it's not first... got a use case yet though. Technology for the sake of technology knows nothing for nobody. I'll still I'll still have that tattoo. Ooh. I, I, that's a good tattoo. We should we should all get maybe as a T-shirt. I think there's <laughs> we need to acknowledge. I've been very very cynical about where the crypto world has gone recently and um and in fact I've been approached by a couple of crypto bros recently to join. <laughs> to join their their boards and it's like mm, no um and 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 it's oh no because the the space is creating a very weird echo chamber for itself but if i if i'm honest if i remember back to the first time i encountered this technology and the art of the possible around it it blew my mind and it was a very much a before and after moment for my understanding of the art of the possible. Now, it's arguable that all the things that impressed me, we can now do with other technologies, probably cheaper, more effectively, and you don't need to go into the complexity that goes with it. But as um as a paradigm shift in terms of how we all perceive technology, it's, it's undeniably significant. Whether it ends up being the thing that takes us into the future or not remains to be seen from a capabilities perspective to Gaurav's point there's a million ways to to do the same thing that don't require DLT anymore and I find that the the crypto world has become its own um its own little universe but I like the analogy of the super user because I hadn't thought of it like that and you're right it is exactly like that and maybe it's a transitional phase and maybe it's not and we will have a completely different I think the adoption I think the adoption of technology has changed, right? Because before a user had to wait before technology came from a financial institution. Today that's no longer the case. Today a parallel ecosystem is set up which says we can operate to do financial services and transactions in a parallel ecosystem which is user generated and regulated or not regulated or self-governed or DAO. It, there's opportunities for these uh, these 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 frameworks to exist now. Before then, there was never an option. There was never an alternative. You had to wait for someone to cater to adopt the technology before they could put it in front of you, because there was processes. And yeah, and yeah, think, yeah, yeah. And I think now that we've also got, you know, I think it's the first time. Also, I remember, you know, really getting involved in the conversation where you had banks saying, "Oh, startups are going to die," and and fintech startups on one side said, "We're going to kill the banks." And then they sort of came closer together and hugged it out. And then what you also understood, what you also understood, in the innovation center, right? Pretty much <laughs> with, with the beanbags. In the innovation center, right? And then what you really, really, really don't love beanbags. <laughs> You're extremely uncomfortable. No one looks good getting in or out of one. I actually <laughs> decided that they're one of those pieces of furniture that are meant to be a leveler. Like you can't have a tense conversation while trying to get out of a beanbag. It's only uh, because I, the other person are 25 later. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but coming back to your point later earlier on about technology adoption, right? This this is a this is a piece. You know, when you see for twenty years, you see technology being stitched onto legacy frameworks. When you step back to a ten thousand or twenty thousand foot view of the entire system that a bank has, it's really a obnoxious, horrible, gangrenous Frankenstein. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> yeah, and I really think in the last five years only. Banks have really understood that they can build completely fresh parallel infrastructure to adopt all these technologies much faster, have governance rights and things. But it still takes time to build. Agree. And look, I, I was I was yesterday here in London with um, one of my sort of peers in the core banking space, uh, a competitor, I guess. But we're trying to solve the same problem. We're chatting about this. And and we were saying, you know, that first it was belief. It was belief that you can actually have scalable, secure, cloud native uh, core infrastructure to move you away from the mainframe. Then it was migration. That was the big thing. But actually, you're seeing successful migrations being completed now. Difficult, but successful. So we were having exactly this conversation. What's the next frontier? And it's inevitably switching the bloody things off until we actually switch the things off. That parallel processing has definitely taken us a long way from where we were, but it has taken the cost through the roof. Actually, security considerations are becoming uh, a sort of second order because you're you're processing different information in different systems. One is batch-based, the other is real-time. Right. You're leaving much more to chance with a swivel processing person between the two. It's not reliable. No. It's not the way forward. It's not a good long-term plan. It's not a good no, long-term plan. And it's not future-proof, right? Because your competition is moving at a pace that's going to be faster than you. So if they if they adopt clear platforms, new platforms right from the beginning and start again in parallel, they're going to be way ahead of you on clarity for adoption, build, support, security, regulation, turning things off, on, etc. Even third-party partnerships, you know, anything else. It's a real... Oh, my, I could not agree more with you. And and I think the reality is that anyone who's worked in technology long enough knows that there is no such thing as no technical debt and there is no such thing as no legacy. And the speed at which you acquire it is staggering and depressing. Within two years of running a business, you'll have both legacy and, and technical debt. Within five, you'll have plenty of both. The reality is that if you're trying to transform the technical uh, the technology stack of a bank, because of all the processes and human-made constructs that I talk about in my book, what would normally take two years takes five. So the technology that you put in place is already old or aging by the time you complete the work. So the, the, the conversation shouldn't be how do we accelerate that adoption. It should be exactly what you just touched on. In a world where change is rapid and you can never protect yourself from legacy, how key is it that you produce that technology yourself and you battle that yourself? And and if not, can you partner with people who provide you a managed service because they're vertically integrated into your business, but they're also specialists in whatever vertical they're in? It's their problem to continually future-proof their business. And it's one less thing for you to worry about. Bank banks are not quite there yet, but fundamentally... The pace with which change comes and the speed with which adoption proceeds, even though banks are getting faster, the gulf is getting bigger. 
Am I the bad guy? Um, no. Gaurav just you talked mean? about bank technology as Frankenstein, and I'm going to correct him and say it's Frankenstein's monster rather than Frankenstein. <laughs> I'll take it. It is Frankenstein's so monster. So let's talk about Frankenstein's monster because that's a nice, colorful way to describe core banking technology. So oh, maybe you were, you were... Sorry, you asked for that, Gara. What can I say? I mean, <laughs> I'll send you Mary Shelley's books later. They're on my bookshelf. So, um, core banking systems, core banking systems. So that's a nice segue to 10X and 11FS. And do you just work for companies with numbers in these days, later? Yeah, I, I need to go to something with a nine. I'm working my you, way to number one. 11FS, which sounds like a radio station, if I can say that. But then 10X, which is like some kind of VC pitch book thing. And then nine what nine guys or no, that's I a, don't know. oh my god yeah <laughs> nine crypto guys nine, nine crypto bros and later nine crypto <laughs> bros and a partner next to return on her investment maybe or something she's put money and later on the advisory board for gender <laughs> so core banking core banking talk you know without giving too much of a pitch for a sales pitch for 10x or 11fs or what were you trying to do at 10 or what is 10x trying to do and companies like 10X is not meant to be a pitch for 10, you know, there are lots of others, Talk Machine, Mambu and others. What, you know, why, why did Anthony set up 10X? Why did Talk Machine get well, set up? I think, I mean, the, uh, the answer why, why he set up 10X, I think is, uh, is a much, uh, it's a much more straightforward answer to the rest. So let me start there. Um, he wasn't done. I, uh, you know, Anthony. He wasn't done. I like that. He wasn't, he wasn't done. done. He, yeah. He, he had unfinished had, business. He had unfinished business. And and I have told him repeatedly in, yeah. in my years of working at 10X, uh, and I have told him I've just left 10X. I don't know. It's not public actually yet. So breaking news right here. But I, I still tell him to now that mm. if I was in his shoes and I had yeah. had one of the biggest and most stressful jobs in the industry and yeah. I came to that job, solvent, healthy, um, yeah. I would be drinking pina coladas on a beach. <laughs> and I don't even like pina coladas. Or margaritas. Exactly. But I would not put myself in the process of starting a startup. It's brutal work, right? But yeah. he was he, he believed in the transformation of, mm. of the business Mm. And he believed that the only way to transform society is by fixing some of those systemic issues. And he wanted to build the technology he didn't have, mm. uh, which are, as a motivation is, is really powerful. I think if you look at what 10X does, what Thor Machine does, what Mambu mm. does, what people like um, technicists in, in, in the States, but also what we were doing with 11FS Foundry, even though mm. um, that has taken a different direction since, is a, is a belief that the Frankenstein monster gangrenous thing that Gaurav described cannot take us any further. Gangrenous Gaurav. <laughs> it's been sort of valiantly limping up until yeah. now. Yeah. It can't take us any further. And what we need mm. is a clean, scalable utility that allows that real-time ledger activity, real-time customer mm. master activity, real-time liquidity management and visibility if you're in a in a real time economy, mm. your information, your controls, mm. your increasingly clearing and settling, all of that starts becoming real time. In order to even have a view of where mm. things should be, you need systems that are designed for a real time world. So all mm. of the companies that we've just mentioned, accept that the bells and whistles will happen at the top of the stack with 
you, your clever data analytics and the products that customers provide, but your plumbing underneath needs to be designed for the real time world. And you can't you can't take a mainframe into that world with no amount of hacking. So the the companies that have emerged, and it's interesting that they're all roughly the same age. They come at a moment where cloud native infrastructure is becoming palatable with regulators. So you mm. can actually build all of this <clears> on the cloud. So it's not financially forbidding. Mm. Our understanding on how to keep those systems scaled and secure matures. Because back in the day, back in my day, Ronit, you would have these conversations with your CTR mm. and they'd be like, we'll never use the cloud. It's not safe. It's not secure. I remember sitting in a meeting. I think I've told you this before in a basement because that's where they kept the IT people back then uh, for a full day on the dangers of open source technology. Like Now saying this to an, an engineer, even inside a big bank, they'd be like, what are you insane? Mm. Open source is the most like thoroughly tested technology, but 10 this years is what This is the early 2000s? So when is this? Yeah, just before the financial crisis. Oh, mid-2000s. Okay. Mid-2000s. Interesting. So 10X was set up when exactly? I'm, and just for the for the benefit of the audience who doesn't know 10X, um, 10X was set up by Anthony Jenkins, former group chief executive of Barclays Bank, uh, one of the biggest banks in the UK. And once upon a time, one of the biggest banks in the world, I found out the other yeah. day while reading some banking history. Um, and actually, I think what, when Anthony was there, um, it had a, it was still that had a big partnership with ABSA, so very very big footprint in, uh, in Africa, big footprint in the US through Barclaycard. So well, yeah, a global player, big, uh, big 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 bank. And Anthony left um, Barclays um, and didn't go sip pina coladas on the beach. Yes, but instead started tax. Um, 10x is seven this year, I think. Seven. I think it's seven years yeah. yeah, I can still remember meeting Anthony when he set up 10X, just after he set up 10X. So yeah, that feels about right because one of their one of 10X's first investors was um maybe not the first, but one of their early ones was Ping An Ventures. Yeah. And that would have been around that time, yeah, half a dozen years ago. So Anthony sets up 10X with this idea that we need to fix banking because for all the reasons you've just said later. Now we're now in 20 what are we in Gareth 2023 uh if you were and this might be relevant given as you just announced publicly you're leaving 10x if you were in Anthony's boots seven years ago or a decade ago when Anne Bowden Tom Blomfeld few around that same time 2013 to 15 right all these UK neobanks are being set up they're getting funded, getting their licenses, twenty or getting the ideas, 2013, 14, 15, typically is when it's all happening. And that was the kind of neobank. Then you had the sort of core banking. What's like, what's, you know, what's hot now? What's interesting now? Hey, Gaurav, what would you suggest later should go and do as our next project? I mean, apart from crypto, obviously, or AI, but what should you be doing? I'm doing all the pros. Honestly, you want yes. Okay, so from just this conversation, I mean, just one later saying is, you know, we were talking in the beginning about the main problem for technology adoption, not being technology, but or creation of technology, but humans, people, effectively. I actually think 
uh, governance structures need to be replaced in financial institutions because the people there rotate too quickly for technology adoption to be meaningful to actually take place and be understood. So I actually think perhaps as a person that works with financial institutions, there should be like you have a, a board and you have a management group, you should have people that stay in for defined periods of structure of time where we understand technology adoption can really take place three to seven years to make sure that meaningfully takes place because CEOs change, management change, CTOs yeah. change, and those alliances change. And those cause delays and shifts within the infrastructure for anything to happen on adoption of technology sets, whatever they may be, small or large, because those alliances change. You see management change happen and you see everything else happen. So I think parallel infrastructures for independent thought leaders with experience need to be set up in financial institutions to ensure the roadmaps or, or frameworks get carried out to those groups of customers. So maybe later that's what you should be doing. You should be forming those key alliances of people that you can take into these institutions and, and actually ensure their revenue growth and better stickiness for those customers, B2B or B2C. I like it. I like it. You can stay. We're keeping him. <laughs> yeah, it just sounds like a human problem, right? It's, 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 it's a human problem. Yeah, and, and I think the rotation of, of people from, from infrastructure to infrastructure is is a bit of a is a bit of a thing uh, that's you know that does actually I think people have good intentions to grow, but uh, when alliances and shifts happen in different parts of what is it, a large institution, it takes longer for effective delivery to take place. Yeah. It should be independent maybe. I don't know. <laughs> hypothesizing it's a big big task to, to solve wow not retiring anytime soon so bring it uh that would be that would be boring then you have to figure out where to start so he's staying in the core banking space later <laughs> i am definitely going to chain to stay in the wider um in the wider space of of trying to 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 change our our industry one way or another i think that obviously when you're in the weeds working in in core mm -hmm. banking or working in um you know um affordable lending solution are very different but actually they're they're not they're all pointing in the same direction and i think as you were saying earlier there was a golden moment um, of of hope and creativity in UK fintech, where we saw a lot of the neos come into being. We saw a lot of a lot of people walk out of big corporate jobs and start startups. A, a healthy chunk of those startups have become unicorns. But if you take a long, long hard look at them, even the unicorns are not profitable, sustainable businesses yet. We don't know whether that's an indication of failure or the fact that it's just a very long road. Um, interest rates being what they are, investors are getting antsy. So that the shine has gone off the neos a little bit. Um, it has gone off the startups a little bit, but it has most definitely not gone off the technology. So mm. although we looked to the, the new technology and the new business and the new ways of working as an indivisible package back in the day, now we're seeing that the VC-backed growth at all cost bubble has made some millionaires, but hasn't actually transformed our economy the neos may or may not work out it's a long road 
10 years in, the indications are we'll see. Um, but the, the technology landscape is, is absolutely transformed. Mm. So if we look back, what the thing we were looking at was almost the sort of leading indicator of the thing. Mm. And it was a, 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 a useful mental handle for what it is we were talking about. So whether we're going to see consolidation of big entities or smaller companies exist is almost secondary to the fact that the, the tech tooling that was coming with these businesses has transformed our lives, even if those businesses themselves haven't. We're going to watch and wait to see what Leda does next. What's next with Leda? <laughs> I think that be- that's a plug for the title of our, new, of our podcast new title i so, like it what's next what's next so as we wrap up as you had the kind of the the home straight of our conversation i want to talk about something very important so about socks <laughs> i thought you were going to ask me about dinosaurs about dinosaurs too but uh we did frankenstein already so i think we part dinosaurs now you can talk about socks so i was having a conversation with a boss of mine from the mid 1990s who was telling me that apparently back in the day i don't know if it's the 1970s or when whenever he started out that uh depending on the job you did in london you wore different colored socks apparently this could be an urban legend or a myth or whatever so i like it i'm gonna pretend like the, the FX traders, you know, the you know, many of whom were like basically barrel boys, the FX boys were like all white socks. And I hope this is right, but um maybe the producer can fact check this. But anyway, this comes in good uh uh good sourcing. My boss from 1996, 95. So the FX traders would wear white socks and the stockbrokers would wear obviously red socks. And then you've been writing about socks as well. In the DD we did for this podcast, or the DD. Google search we did on your recent articles called DD. What is what have you been writing about socks and what's the explain, please? <laughs> um, specifically, the article that you uncovered in your DD uh, was about the fact that I am uh, I wear odd socks not when I'm dressed up to the nines to go somewhere or like when I go to the gym I won't necessarily yeah. match it's my a fashion statement or it's a laziness statement laziness it's statement. a realization that the effort that goes into sorting my socks doesn't in any way enhance my quality of life okay and provided that the socks are of a similar make so your feet don't feel different because trying to go for a run and you feel feeling different doesn't yeah. work yeah. um no I've tried Probably more different like, shoes would do that that would <laughs> Haven't done that yet. Um, yeah. Anyway, the the piece was was triggered on on the back yeah. of um, of that, and and I, I used the socks as a framing device to say that um, essentially, are you someone who would wear odd socks? Most people mm. aren't. But that's that's okay, you know. Um, yeah. If that works for you, some of us wear odd socks, some wouldn't, and I think that's the um, that's important. But what mm. I'm what I'm going with this is that like knowing this about yourself is important mm. and I managed to segue more smoothly in the context of the text than I will on this call segue mm. that into um how we consume consulting services in banking and how essentially would you wear odd socks if they were designer if Armani put odd socks in the pack and it cost yeah. eight euros would you wear them but you wouldn't wear them if you paired them yourself um 
and and essentially you don't bought fancy socks for a while right? i'm sure you can't buy armani socks for 80 euros for 18 i have not bought socks for a while because the fintech world keeps me in socks in mm-hmm. a way that it's just i'll tell really? you another song. it's socks swag socks galore in fact when i first met david my partner yeah. he was a black sock man and i have slowly been chipping isn't that just most men I mean, well, I don't know about Gyro, but my daughter is just black or navy blue, so... After years of fintech socks coming back from conferences, now he will wear bright orange socks and this pair of clear bang socks that is blue and purple and orange. So I came back from an event a couple of months ago and I had brought him back a very stylish pair of MongoDB socks in a charcoal grey with very <laughs> discreet green polka dots. I thought they were very nice. He looked at it and was like, these are old David socks. <laughs> doesn't wear boring socks. I, I have to reconfirm what Lira is saying because every fintech event or company I've invested in in the UK or event I've been to in the US, Money 2020 included, I've always got fintech socks from all the companies. I don't know really? why. Yeah, I, I get caps. I have, a collection. I have a fintech socks collection at home. I do. I've Absolutely. missed the trend. I get cap on coconut socks. I have other socks. Some I have... are very comfortable. Yeah. I am. Uh, yeah. I, How do socks relate back into consulting and consuming technology services? Oh, I'm going to have to go what read my point? article now. Oh, I can't read your article. Give us, what was, what, what did you say? The point of the article was that you need to have a, a an idea of your appetite. Mm-hmm. or you consume a service or a fashion item. Okay. Uh, your starting point should be, are you an odd sock kind of person? Yeah. If you are, then it shouldn't matter whether they were designed that way or whether you ended up wearing them that way. But if you're not, um, mm-hmm. buying the designer socks is not the thing. So, you know, it's much smoother in the text. But essentially, it was about how we consume... Um, consulting services, particularly as the pressure to digitize is mounting, because we've been at it for so long with very mediocre results. Uh, right. Consultants uh, recycle the same reports with a different logo on the front, because the reality is until you start making some commitments in the context of who you are, mm. everything they tell you is potentially true. Mm. So how do you know how much of it is useful, whether it's worth paying for that report for the 10th time and and whether you're going to be able to do anything with it. It actually has nothing to do with the consultants and everything to do with you. Are you an odd sock kind of person? Yes or no? If you are, there's a set of ranges of possibilities available to you. And if you're not, there's a different set of ranges of possibilities for you. And I'll tell you this story as we're coming to the end. It's a depressing story. Um, I did a workshop with an insurance company a few years ago. And it was... At that moment in time where they had realized that digitization was inevitable, but it wasn't yet clear what it would mean for them. So the workshop was one day of sort of understanding the the, the ways in which the new technology changes the world. So not necessarily learning what everything is, but understanding what is possible. Now, the second is seeing some of the changes we've seen in other industry. And the third was spitballing what it might mean for them. At the end of the session, their CEO stood up and said, this has been the most amazing three days. Yay. Uh, we've learned a lot. We've thought a lot. Yay. And we realize that we don't have the stomach for what lies ahead. 
crushed, right? I was absolutely crushed at the time. But with every passing year and every team of executives that I've worked with, I've realized yeah. that actually that was the most valuable realization because their digital strategy has moved further than many who were all bravado, but actually behind closed doors didn't have the ability to commit. These guys were like, we don't have the stomach for big bets, big leaps, mm. but we understand this is inevitable. So this is the pace we will move at because anything above that is not within our comfort zone mm. and we will not deliver properly. So they knew that they were not odd sock kinds of people and they didn't spin their wheels and chase their tails trying to do something that was never going to happen. So although at the time I felt that it was like the worst experience ever, with hindsight, mm -hmm. it was invaluable. It's invaluable to know where your leadership appetite, your ability to execute, your ability to carry your board lies. Mm -hmm. Because between knowing the direction of the world and knowing the limitations of, of what you can do, you'll set a pace that's realistic. Odd socks. There you go. I've got like Nike somewhere. Over to you. Do you have more soft questions or no, 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 thank you so much. no, thank you, thank you so much. I think, I think, uh, Lita, thank you so much. We've come back to, uh, you know, a conversation about human elements being at the core forefront, whether technology is advanced or not. And thank you so much for being with us and actually being the first guest on our new season as we launch What's Next. So. We eagerly await to find out what is next with you and what you do. I think the options are open. And at some point, this uh, this succulicious episode will be sponsored by Nike, no doubts, or Adidas. We let them duke it out. But thank you so much for everything exactly. and being with us. And we wish you all the best and look forward to reading your book. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.